When we left England in 81, the economy was in pretty dire straits over there. And quite a few of our friends had written off to this company that none of us knew anything about called Halliburton to go and pump cement into oil wells in the Middle East and sounded intriguing and it sounded like a good life. 56 days on, 28 days off, ticket to anywhere in the world you wanted to go. So I put an application in and then about two months after I arrived in the United States, a letter came through to say that you got the job. Packed up my bags and headed to the Middle East for five years. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We're excited to welcome John Burgess to the show today, president of Pomarco. From our perspective, in talking with you, it's always intriguing to us. You have a crazy background that you were on oil rig in Abu Dhabi, and that's besides the point. But non-owner leaders and how you think like an owner and how you develop your team, and it just always fascinated right. by that. Plus, you got a great voice for radio, too. So Great face for radio. Definitely a great face <laughs> for radio, too. John is somebody that I think in this industry is a big personality with a very intriguing background prior to his life in Corrugated that we'll dig into. Now a word from our sponsors. They used to say, that guy can't punch his way out of a paper bag. Probably more importantly, he can't punch his way out of an ox box. At ox box, they remain singularly focused on one area of the industry, and that is jumbo and heavy-duty boxes. Strength you can depend on. Visit them at www. .oxbox.com. John, we're anxious to really dig into your leadership style. If you wouldn't mind giving us maybe two minutes about Pomarco and what you do and what you provide to the industry. Well, first off, thank you for the invite to do this podcast. It's uh, very intriguing, very interesting. As you said, I am not an owner of a business, which is different from a lot of the other guests you've had. Pomarco is a wonderful company. We've been around 75 years now. I'll let you into a little secret. Most people don't know what the name Pomarco even stands for. And when it was founded in the 1950s, it was Paper Machinery and Research Company. That's where the name Pomarco comes from. Obviously, long gone, and the name Pomarco is synonymous with analogs in the industry. So we've been in business 75 years, privately owned for a good chunk of that period, up till 92. And then the original ownership sold Pomarco to the first equity group in 92 that held us till 2006. And then in 2006, there was another transaction and with our current owners, and we've been with them ever since. So our current owners are a family office, not your traditional equity that buys and flips. They buy and hold and grow and establish, and it's been a great relationship, great ownership, very supportive. It's been a really tremendous experience with them. I don't know why, but our audience continues to grow. Talk about specifically what an analog's role is, its application in corrugated, kind of flexible packaging, examples for our listeners to understand where they would see that or experience and encounter that, and how your product does what it does to provide the print capabilities that we require in our business. Sure. 
So an analog roll, particularly in corrugated, a large steel cylinder. It can be made of carbon fiber also for lightweightedness, but 99% of applications are large steel cylinders that we then plasma coat with chromium oxide, which is a very hard, dense material. We then grind it and polish it to a, a very fine finish. And then we use a laser beam to engrave these tiny cells into the roll itself directly. These cells have a direct relationship to the amount of ink that's carried from the ink fountain or the chamber doctor blade to the printing plate. For instance, most people printing brown boxes would be using a 250, 300 lines per inch, that's 250 or 300 cells per linear inch engraving. If you're getting into some very high process work, like some of our customers here in AICC, some of them are using 900 lines per inch, so much finer line screens. Every single print station on a Flexo press has an analog roll. You can't print without an analog roll. In the flexible packaging, it's exactly the same principle. Exactly the same process takes place in the manufacture of the cylinder. The average screen count used for film is higher than it is for corrugated because corrugated is a medium that absorbs ink. Film isn't a medium that absorbs ink. One of the big changes that's happened in the film industry from our perspective the last five to eight years is rather than using cylinders, we use these sleeves so that the companies that manufacture these fiberglass sleeves with an inner compressible layer and they actually fit with lubricants of air onto a mandrel that's permanently mounted in the press. So we coat and engrave a sleeve which is very lightweight, very easy to transport and a lot of these new presses have almost a window on the side of the press so they can open the window, take one sleeve out, put another sleeve in. Because as we all know, the whole world has gone to much shorter runs. Of course, the other thing we see greatly in the industry is consolidation of the corrugated customer base, of the film customer base. There's several huge conglomerates now that are just buying up all the independents on the film side, as we're seeing on the, the corrugated side. So I think the last three or four years, there's been an incredible amount of change that way too. We have to be very fluid, very dynamic in our approach to the market. There's a lot of moving pieces. Obviously your accent isn't from Atlanta. So take us back to your childhood. So I was born on the south side of Manchester, a small town called Denton, 1960. We lived in Denton till we were about 10 or 11 years old and then moved north of Manchester. That was a big move. It was 20 miles north. And it's the place now that, as a family, we call home, a place called Bolton. My father was in the cylinder business, but he manufactured gravure cylinders. So he was the managing director. He started off in sales, but then eventually worked his way up to managing director of the largest gravure cylinder manufacturing company in the United Kingdom, a company called Cunliffe Gravure. Manchester is a big textile area, and most engravers or engraving technologies came out of textiles. And if you look at where engravers generally are, we're the exception at Pomarco, but they're in Krefeld, Germany now. They're in Manchester, and they're in Charlotte, North Carolina. So that's why Charlotte has this proliferation of competitors for us. That was the skill set that started the whole business. 
So my father moved to the States in 1978. He was headhunted by Pomarco as part of the original ownership group, the private owners. He came over and myself and my brother finished university in England and then came over in 1981. So we've been here over 40 years now. It's uh, more time here in the States than in the UK, which still feels strange <laughs> given the accent and the affinity to the UK, but this is home. Obviously being around the industry from a young age, was it something that you wanted to follow in your dad's footsteps early on or were you set on different things? I don't think I was set on anything really. We got through high school and in the UK it's very different. The streaming to get to universities, it, depending on some fairly stringent exams you have to pass when you're 18 years old and that's very dependent on where you'll go to college after that. I was accepted on a chemistry course. I had an idea one time to be an accountant, but I didn't really have any aspirations ever to be in the business. I'd walk the shop floor of dad's company and he was in a similar position to me. He was working for a private owner. We'd walked the shop floor of the company since we were four or five or six years <laughs> old. So we've seen cylinders being engraved in one form or another for all our lives. So I guess it was natural that I was going to slot into it at some stage. But, uh, but when we left England in 81, the economy was in pretty dire straits over there. And quite a few of our friends had written off to this company that none of us knew anything about called Halliburton to go and pump cement into oil wells in the Middle East and sounded intriguing and it sounded like a good life, 56 days on, 28 days off, ticket to anywhere in the world you wanted to go. So I put an application in. This was, I think, about six months before we moved to the States. And then about two months after I arrived in the United States, a letter came through to say that you got the job packed up my bags and headed to the Middle East for five years. What'd your dad say? Go. <laughs> Please go. No, he was delighted. He was happy that it was gone. Sow your wild seeds now if you want to do it at this stage of your life. The difference then, this was the early 1980s, places like Abu Dhabi and Dubai are on everybody's lips now. It's on the TV. In those days, nobody had a clue about those countries and what they were and how they managed themselves and the culture. And so I was originally slated to go to Saudi Arabia with Halliburton. But when I got to Bahrain, which was the corporate office, which is a small island in the Gulf, they said, unfortunately, we can't get your visa for Saudi, so you go into Abu Dhabi, which turned out to be a much better move because Abu Dhabi was quite liberal and a fun place to work. And I had a great time for five years. What's a training like to be a part of a team like that? Yeah, we train, it was almost a year. You go in as a trainee and you work with a trained operative for 12 months. And if you make the grade, you almost, it's a bit like boot camp, you pass out and then you're, you're out on your own. Obviously, doing what we were doing, you could very easily destroy an oil well. So it was a pretty responsible job. So they wanted people who understood how to do things and how to execute. It was very interesting because it was before computerization. So we used to write our invoices on the rig 
that we call them job tickets in those days, and you'd actually write for write down every item, every cubic foot of cement you'd pumped, every bit of chemical that you'd put in the uh, in the mix, and you'd be writing tickets for three, four hundred thousand dollars, just handwriting them, and getting the company official to sign off on them. So. It was, it was very different. Talk about the actual process. Explain what you were doing. Okay, so an oil field primer. Oil is contained in a pool 9,000 feet under the ground. Oil is in the porosity of rock. That's where it is. There isn't, it's a bit in a way like a coal seam and you have to get to that porous formation. So after they've determined that the formation has got the ability to contain oil, and that's really all they can do from the soundings that they do at the surface, then they'll start to drill some exploration wells. So when you drill an oil well, you drill it in stages. We typically did four stages. The first stage was two or 300 feet, and then the hole is lined with this metal casing, which is big metal tubing. In our case, it was 26 inch that went down to about two or 300 feet. And then we would pump liquid cement down through a pipe, down to the bottom of the casing, and it would come up what we call the annulus, which is the space between the casing and the formation. And that first leg, if you like, that's what protected the groundwater. Because if you didn't have that cement there, then you can imagine if you've got aquifers and stuff down there, they could then communicate with other formations. So salt water could mix with regular water and so that was the first one and then we'd do a smaller pipe down to about 5,000 feet then we'd do nine and five eighths casing to be technical down to about 9,000 feet and then we'd hang a seven inch liner about another thousand feet below that was it cement only in that first no that we every single stage of That's the amazing. process we cemented so they drill for about two or three days four or five days and then we'd do another cement job and then come back in, drill out the cement that was left in the pipe, go deeper, hang more pipe, and then do another cement job. So once you've got the hole completely lined and sheathed with metal and concrete, obviously it's sealed entirely then from the formation. So you have to somehow get to it, get to the formation to allow oil to flow. So then a company would come with shake charges that they'd hang on wireline and they'd blow holes through the casing, through the cement, into the formation. And that's what would then allow oil to come into the At well. At the very, very bottom. The very bottom. That metal casing and concrete above that blowout remains intact Absolutely. to protect that. That's yeah. incredible. And what's your role in the process? I picture this very intensive manual labor type stuff. It was very heavy manual labor. So we had these high pressure pumping trucks. They were triplex pumps. We mixed cement on the fly to a certain density and pumped it down the hole. And then the cement would set, but we'd have to add chemicals to retard the set because Obviously at 9,000 feet, it gets pretty warm down there. All these menus had been put together in our lab back at the office and everyone was slightly different with the type of cement we're using. So we pre-mix all these chemicals and then use that to mix the cement to run down. And then because that part of the world, limestone formations, in order to help the oil to flow after the shape charges have been used, 
would then pump hydrochloric acid down the well and push the hydrochloric acid back into the formation. And it would basically create this fingering effect that would allow the oil to flow into the well bore. University degree in chemistry. Get to the desert, you're pumping oil, you're a year into this, and what was your mindset at the time? Was this something you wanted to do in the long term? It was something I really enjoyed. It was something I was really good at. And it was something I wanted to continue to do. So I was there for five years. And Halliburton, now everybody knows the name. It's a worldwide company. I was hoping that there was lots of opportunities to move to some nice parts of the world. But to give you some perspective, when I went to the Middle East, oil was $36 a barrel. When I finally decided it's probably not worth staying, it was $9 a barrel. So promotions <laughs> were hard to find, transfers were hard to find, and it was becoming very difficult. What's life like in that part of the world outside of work? Yeah, 56 days on, which was 56 days straight, no days off. So for most of that period of time, we lived on the rig, either offshore or onshore. If you was offshore because accommodation is short, they'd like to get you back in as soon as your job was done. So you tend to get a few more days of leisure. They weren't officially days off. In the desert, our equipment, we would move from rig to rig. So really there was no days off. You'd get the occasional night and it was about a three hour drive through the desert back to town. The town even then was incredible with hotels and marinas and swimming pools and clubs and so you'd go out and have a night out with your buddies. We had a guest house in town, and then you'd head straight back out early in the morning. It was a very nice lifestyle out there. Good way to save some money, because yeah. you were sitting on a rig being fed, and your accommodation was provided for you, and all your transportation. Talk about life on the rig itself. Personally, I know I don't. I'm sure most of our listeners don't have any clue what it's actually like to be on a rig. It's a very different lifestyle. Yeah. Rig crews themselves generally work 12 hour towers. So midnight to midday, and then another crew takes over from midday to midnight. As a service company, which was, or a subcontractor would be another way to put it, as we were classed, we would work whenever they need us to work. So you would eat, sleep, work. If you weren't working, there was always maintenance repairs you had to do to your pumping systems. So there was always something to do. Boredom did set in sometimes if they were drilling for a week or two weeks and wanted you on site. I was on one blowout. We drilled a well to 21,000 feet almost. And I was on that well for six weeks and did nothing for the entire six weeks. But they want you there on standby for emergencies. There was obviously no alcohol on the rigs. There was TVs, but in those days it was with a UHF antenna hmm. and the hotter the day became. And of course, it's a pretty warm part of the world in the middle of summer. The signal just didn't come in. It was Betamax videos and I read countless books. What about the offshore rig? What was that like? It's like staying on a boat. It was a blessing and a curse being offshore in Abu Dhabi because you could see the lights of town from the rig. <laughs> and no cell phones, there wasn't that much communication, but you knew what your buddies were doing in the <laughs> evenings while you were stuck on a rig. But the accommodation, there were bunks in rooms, all shared bathrooms. The food was generally fantastic. This is so far of a tangential question, but I'm intrigued by it. You said the food was great, but I think of all of these different nationalities on a rig. Were you eating all sorts of different styles of food? I should have said the food was great offshore. 
onshore, it was pretty awful. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> it was great forced weight loss program when yeah. you were onshore. But offshore, generally you had two or three different messes and the messes were set up for the different nationalities that were there. That's and so you could get all kinds. And of course, the food is served 24 hours a day. You could walk into the mess at any time, day or night. Yeah. Were there uh, any moments during that five-year period of crisis? Not really. It was the easy life offshore on the rig. It really was. Compared to the onshore, it was a lot less manual labor. I was in the radio room of a rig one day. This was when the Iraq-Iran conflict was going on and heard a radio operator as an Exocet missile hit his rig. That was much further up in the Gulf and nowhere near us. During those five years, what was your career goals at the time? Were you looking at making this your life? I was. I actually took a job for 12 months. So we had a position called the field chemist. And the field chemist was somebody who stayed in town, didn't work on the rigs, and designed a lot of the jobs in association with the engineers. So did the recipe for the cement or the acid. And I was seriously thinking of taking an engineering course. I've always been good with mathematics. So the math combined with the chemistry and I was kicking myself that I wasn't an engineer because the engineers that worked for Halliburton had a really good job and very interesting jobs, particularly the petroleum engineers, the reservoir engineers. So I would have liked to have gone down that route if I'd have stayed. But I was definitely thinking it was a job for more than just a couple of years when I went out there. I really enjoyed it. And it, it was a fun lifestyle. Is it hard to try to get yourself back to the States as you leave Halliburton? No, I came back to Pomarco actually. Early 87, I came back to Pomarco and I was with Pomarco then for about five years. So you reached out, I would assume to your dad and said, hey, is there anything at the company where I might be able to assist? Yes. I was starting to think that it was time to look for a career back in the U.S. Yeah. Because things weren't looking good. I've never done sales in my life, but I thought I couldn't talk, so I could be a salesman. And very unfortunately, a salesman in the Northeast for Pomarco passed away. So all of a sudden, there was an opening. And clearly, no offense to the salespeople, John, but all you need to do is talk to be a salesman. Isn't that right, Joe? Isn't that? Yeah, it's as simple, I mean, it's as, simple as that. It's as simple as that. So you come back to sell. Yeah. So I worked the Northeast Territory for Pomarco for 18 months, which was basically New England. And it was a fantastic grounding to start to understand customers, what they were looking for. I didn't want to be in sales forever. That wasn't my path of choice. But you knew it would be valuable. But it, yeah, it was a good underpinning to what I'm now doing in the rest of my career. You moved back to the States. You really hadn't lived in the States. You said you were there for a brief two-month period right. before yeah. you went overseas. So now you're back in the States. You're in a completely different industry doing a completely different line of work. There's a lot of change in your life mm. at that time. How did you deal with that? Yeah, it was definitely very exciting. It was challenging. The one thing when you move to a country that speaks the same language, your initial thought is, I'm just going to fit in because we all speak the same language. And, and you right. actually don't. It takes a lot of work. And I think it, for myself and my brother, it was a lot more difficult transition than we ever thought it would be to come to the States. But then you start to get into the cadence, the rhythm of it, and then things start to click. You start to develop some friends. You start to develop a life outside, little life outside work. Just things 
golf has always been high on my list of priorities outside of work. You start to play golf, find people that you're going to play with on a regular basis. So the jigsaw puzzle starts to, to fit. But it, it takes a while. It isn't an overnight thing. And with Pamako then, so I was living with my parents in New Jersey and traveling to all these states that were north of New Jersey. So I was gone every week from Monday to Friday. Mm. So really my own time was the weekends. And I can name every Macintosh in, every Red Roof in, <laughs> in New England and New York State. I made my way all the way to Presque Isle, Maine. It was probably further from New Jersey than the length of Great Britain. But it was great to actually get to see some of these areas and see the customers. So I did that about 18 months. And then a position became available at Pamarco in Dallas as a plant manager, which was more the route I wanted to take into kind of general management. So then I moved to Dallas and was in Dallas for five years. Concurrently, the last two years I was in Dallas, I also was running the plant in California. Kate, my wife, had just moved to Dallas. We weren't married yet. They'd asked me to take on this position. So I commuted back and forth from Dallas to Los Angeles for about two years. For those that don't know, you are a twin. What Was Dave at Pomarco? He was. He did a period of casual labor, shall we say, before the visa became official. <laughs> and then Dave, with his business studies and marketing background, got into doing marketing for the company. And then we had a licensee program where, in those days, all we were doing was the mechanical engraving. It was before laser engraving came out. So we actually set up licensees around the world that used our tooling to produce Pomarco rolls in their facilities. They paid royalties and fees on the tooling. So part of Dave's job was to travel the world and go and satisfy all these different characters and go and see customers and promote the Pomarco name. It's interesting, the two of you just exploring the world. Also interesting to have your father and you two all working for the same family-owned company. I'm guessing you all thought very highly of the family that owned the business. And We did. Yeah. They, they were a very good family. And then, the again, when the first equity group came in, they were also a very good ownership group. And the important thing was we were all in different corners of the business, which is the only way really to do it within a business like that. So we, nobody ever reported to anybody else from a family perspective. When you come in, you go down to Dallas to be the plant manager there. Obviously your first position in management, how old are you at the time? 28, I believe. And how many people are reporting to you? How big's the facility? And then you said five years in that role, and then you, they obviously, you were doing well enough to where they gave you a second plant. So walk us through those early days of taking over management and running that facility from, a, from an operations perspective. Yeah, we had a total of, I think at the time, 10 or 11 people. Mm -hmm. There was myself, I had a production manager, one, and then later two salespeople, an office manager, and then eight guys on the shop floor. At the time we were turning over about a million dollars a year it was a very small operation but as a training ground it was fantastic because I had to empty the garbage cans make coffee in the morning we did everything and it was an ideal way to cut my teeth into the business and the California plant was similar sized more turnover a couple more people so it was the next evolution in my career. When you say turnover, you mean revenues? Revenue, you did sales. Yes. yes. I didn't want to move to California. Being based in Dallas was ideal. 
But again, two years of doing that took its toll and we didn't have the communication methods we have now. So it was a lot of phone calls back and forth. After two years, that was probably as much as I could handle. Who'd you report to? In Pamako at the time, we had set up two divisions, an Eastern division and a Western division. And my boss was in charge of the Western division. He was based in our plant in Batavia, Illinois, Chicago. So I reported directly to him. But again, we practiced remote management style for many years at Pomarco. We almost have to because of the nature of the business. There was probably some weeks past where we didn't talk. It was just, please get on with what you've got to get on with. We set our goals and went after it. So from that perspective, from a responsibility standpoint, I had no crutch. I just had to learn on my own, which was the ideal way to do it. Was the, your leadership style crafted in that same manner in terms of just learning on your own or when you, was there somebody that you were learning from and learning how to be a leader? I think my style is to take bits from everybody I come into contact with and see how they work and say, does that work for me? Does that not work for me? I like to give people an awful lot of responsibility. I'm not a micromanager. I like to let them get on with it. And I think, again, with the way Pomaco is set up, if you were a micromanager, it would drive you crazy because you can't be on everybody all the time. You have to give people the opportunity to develop and do their jobs and mentor and coach as much as you can. Obviously these days, that's so much easier with the communication tools we have. In those days, it wasn't near as easy. Were there things that you learned on the oil field, on the rigs that translated to leadership in your role at Promarco? I'm sure there were. I think there's things I learned growing up my entire life with my dad in management, I'd met leaders in the gravure business my whole life where there were people that we would call family friends but then people would mention the names even in the analogs business and i've known them my whole life so i think it was just chip away and develop develop ideas from everybody i came into contact with i've always been very disciplined oil field was like being in the military but you actually got paid for it <laughs> so i am a very disciplined individual i expect people that work for me to be quite disciplined that probably is one of the biggest things i carried over from the oil field into my business life if if i'm expected to be somewhere at seven o'clock in the morning i'm there at 6 30. that's just the way i do it and i don't know whether it's fair or unfair but i expect all the people that work for me to carry out and do exactly the same thing as well hmm. and i get pretty frustrated if that doesn't happen so how do you communicate those sorts of things are you big on setting those expectations right out of the gate i am yeah yeah, yeah. My, my credo is uh, I'll never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. I'm one of those who, as we all have, get off a plane at midnight, but I'm still in the office at quarter to seven in the morning. Yeah. I don't take a day in lieu or I'll be in at 10 o'clock because I had a late night last night. That's not my way of doing things. And yeah. Perhaps I over expect that everybody should be the same as me, but the people that my direct report people, I, I have to say, Either they have it in them to do that or they do it to satisfy me, but they do it. Yeah. That's the way we run our business. So you, you've got the two plants, you're bouncing back and forth. Was Ceramco a completely different company? It is. So yeah. Ceramco is a competitor in Charlotte, small family-owned business. They wanted to expand, so Brother Dave was still in the business. My dad was at the latter stages of his career, and they asked us to come aboard and help develop business for them. 
all three of us at once. What year was this? 1992. This must be quite a coup for them. It was, it was. And you learn as you go, and perhaps we didn't do all the homework we should have done, and the grass wasn't as green on the other side as it should have been. But again, it was a fantastic learning experience. Was Pomarco, had they sold yet to the equity, or was it still the family privately owned? It was under the first equity company in 92. So we're on equity group three now, so it was with the first equity and how group. did they take the news of basically, uh, well, imagine a huge part of their leadership team just... Wasn't very well. Right. Yes. There was a lot of personalities and personal relationships that got a little bit tattered as a result. We just felt it was the right move for us at the time. So I moved to Atlanta, set up a sales organization, and we developed a tremendous sales presence in the area for about three and a half years. And then Dave and myself moved to Charlotte, and Dave became vice president of sales. I became vice president of manufacturing for the business. Where was your dad? He stayed in Atlanta in sales. That lasted about 18 months. and. We had our differences with the owner of the business. He's a good guy and I respect him today, but it, his philosophy and our philosophy were not the same. So we then started to think perhaps this wasn't such a good move and we need to think about moving on. And at the time, Pomarco needed management back and offered us both positions back within Pomarco. Obviously, there's a lot going on there with respect to you guys leaving as a group and Clearly, they thought enough of you to even offer a rollback because I think some people would be rather twisted about something like that. Yeah, again, part of my philosophy, I keep saying our philosophy, I can't speak for Dave all the time, but (laughs) we're not, we didn't burn bridges. We didn't do it as, it wasn't a retribution. It was just a career development that looked better. Mm. So I, I don't think we burned any bridges within the leadership team at Pomarco. Obviously not as they brought us back. So I came back in 1997 to Pomarco, and I've just celebrated 25 years back with the company this year. You said they brought you both back, so your dad didn't go back. He did not. Dad, at that time, basically retired. Okay. And then he moved back to the UK. Any animosity in the return? Or is it the same ownership group, the same equity group? Same group, yeah, same equity group. And Pomarco, at that point, were on a big growth path with acquisitions. There was a strategy at that time to maybe take the company public so they were buying a lot of businesses and trying to gross the size of the company up at the time and were looking for management potential that they could then move throughout the business the public offering never happened the market isn't very excited about companies making engraved cylinders but say we we got we both got back in pomarco i was asked to move to new jersey from charlotte which was a tough move. My wife's from New Jersey, so it was a wonderful move for her to be back near the family. New Jersey, after living in the South for several years, was a big shock from a cost of living standpoint. But we made it back. We live in central New Jersey and have been there ever since. Both our kids went through schooling in New Jersey. So Roselle, New Jersey was the mothership for Pomarco for many years. So I ended up being the plant manager in the Roselle plant and ultimately moved up to vice president of manufacturing. You have kids, you have children that you've raised with Kate. And as an executive in your company, can you maybe give some advice to people that are on that same path, raising children in an executive role, the stresses that come with business 
and then also raising a family at home. How did you balance that? It's hard. It's very hard. I give my wife a huge amount of credit um, doing the homework and everything else that comes along with having kids in school. I was either late coming home from work or gone on a business trip somewhere. I was home at weekends and I'd be the male chauvinist and go play golf. But it is very difficult to balance. Asking for a friend, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) My kids were not the sporting prowess that your kids have, so we weren't too far down that path. But to try and juggle everything, put the work in that's needed to develop the career that I wanted to have, and then to have the enjoyment from all the work I put in to transfer to the home life as well. So... It was very, very difficult. I guess in a way, going back to my dad's career, my dad was in exactly the same position. He started off in sales for his company. He worked his way to managing director through the sales route. But when we were kids, we only saw my dad two weeks a month, maybe. He was in Europe all the time. He was in Japan, he was in Brazil, he was everywhere. So we took on the same mantle ourselves. The good thing when I met my wife, she worked for Pomarco. I was doing that then, so she's never known anything different. It's not like I had a nine-to-five job at home, 52 weeks a year, and then took a job where I had to travel. It's something we've always done and always accepted it had to be done. Plant manager of the Roselle operation, when you come back, right, and then you begin to get promoted up through that. Yeah. Were there a couple of stops, or did you go from that plant manager position to operations VP? No, from plant manager to vice president of manufacturing was my actual title. And I was in that role for about five or six years before I was offered the job of president in 2010, 2011. Were you reporting to the president of the company? I was. And what was that like? It was good. It was another Englishman, Terry Ford, who was the president of the company at the time. And we had a very good business relationship and a good personal relationship. So the way Pomarco has been structured for many years is a president and then a vice president of manufacturing, vice president of sales, vice president of finance. And then we also have a company in the UK. So we have a managing director in the UK that's part of that reporting chain as well. It's a nice group. It is. It's a small group. At that time, all the managers were based in New Jersey. Of course, as time has gone by, that has ceased to be the way it is now and two of my generals live in atlanta my cfo is still in new jersey and of course i've got my managing director in the uk as i say we've always practiced this remote management style certainly teams and zoom have made it a lot easier now we had literally installed teams about a month before the pandemic started (laughs) and it wasn't because the pandemic was coming it was just the next phase in our Microsoft path and thank God we did and to be able to see these guys on a daily or every other day basis now is so much easier than jumping on a plane and flying down there. I'm still a big believer in face-to-face communication, huge believer, but just for those hours where you need to kick things around on a call, the convenience now is tremendous. What is the process like in the interview to become president. You're owned by a PE firm. There's a president in place. Was this like a planned succession? Did they run a full process? Did they know that they were going to go internally and you were the top candidate? Do you have any visibility into how that all unfolded? It was not an open call for president. I think I was always the top of the list for the potential. 
So what had happened, we have a holding company called Pamaco Technologies Limited. The president of that holding company was retiring. So my boss, Terry, was taking his slot. So we needed somebody to move into the president's slot managing Pamaco. And I was very close. I'm very knowledgeable in the business. I, I understand it. I was responsible for most of the capital expenditure. We did plant moves. We did all kinds of things that I had my signature on. So I think it was a natural progression in a way. You obviously inherit Terry's team. Yeah. When you step into that role, was that just a smooth transition? Because as you said, you'd done so much in the business that everybody was prepared for you to take over? Exactly. We'd work very closely together, everybody. So it was a fairly easy transition. It's obvious you're long in the industry. You're a seasoned executive. You know this business very well. How hands-off, hands-on is that PE firm, or family office rather, with you? I would say it's very hands-off. Once my boss listens to the podcast, he may disagree. But <laughs> um, So my boss is, sits on the board for the equity group. We speak three or four times a week. He trusts me to run the business and I run the business. As a group, the equity group doesn't really get very involved. Obviously, when we're looking at acquisitions or maybe divestments, that's when they step in and that's when their expertise takes over. But in terms of the day-to-day -day running of the company, they really don't get very involved at all. Sure. Another thought on that is uh, as you've run this company and your manufacturing background, like you said, are you a big KPI guy? Do you like to have pretty clear objective expectations for your team? I'm probably not overly KPI based. There are several KPIs that I have go-tos and I want to get to and I want us to get right. I look for people that I bring into my team that have those qualities and capabilities and we've managed to attract some really high level talent into the business, which is very heartwarming. As I said, Pomaco is a great company to work for, but it's a company that nobody knows anything about unless somebody approaches you and talks to you about the company. But we have managed to find some really top talent that have a lot of that skill set. I certainly didn't go to school to learn that. I've learned it by the School of Hard Knocks, but some of these guys have lived the KPI route and we now have tools. We're on a platform called FNO, which is Finance and Operations. It's a Microsoft ERP platform. And then we spring off with this Power BI where we can then create dashboards. And so a lot of it now is very visual. It's instantaneous information feedback. So we're getting a lot more professionalized along those routes. A lot of Pomaco for many years was touch and feel, to be frank about it. Sure. But I think we've professionalized ourselves tremendously the last five or eight years. And probably, again, as a result of the pandemic and not seeing people and not sitting in rooms and having meetings, we've really moved on into the 20th century with our computerization and our IT skills. Let's pivot the conversation a little bit and just talk about the industry itself, and you've been around doing this for quite some time now. How have you seen the industry evolve? Where has it come from as opposed to where you're at now? And where do you see it going in the coming years? Yeah, it's a very dynamic industry. And I think the one thing you have to remember when we talk about Pomaco, most people know Pomaco as a supplier to the corrugated industry. But only, he says, 30% of our business is corrugated. About the same percentage is flexible packaging, wide web film business. 
And then we have a lot of other coating and laminating and all kinds of weird and wonderful applications for analog trolls. So we're constantly moving between set market segments and trying to understand the dynamics in each. Obviously at the moment the corrugated is on a high that none of us ever expected or anticipated. I think currently we're seeing that high drop a little bit and I think we're seeing some plateau if not falling backwards a little bit. Pomoco, as most people know, is a supplier to all of the major OEM equipment manufacturers. And we still see an incredible order backlog from our big customers. So that means to us that machines are still out there at least 18 months to two years. We're a service business and generally we don't have backlog exceeding about six or eight weeks. But we've got backlog all the way through the end of the year currently with planned call-offs from our OEM customers for, for analogs. So corrugated continues to boom in our eyes. Again, from a market perspective, I know that there's been some regression there. Flexible packaging is in many ways the same way. We measure flexible packaging by the number of presses coming into the States. That number has been as high as 50. The last couple of three years, it's been in the low 30s but we believe it's heading back towards the 50 number. So the business is very buoyant, extremely buoyant. Would you say if you look back on your career, and a lot of it seems to be self-taught in the early years and your leadership style, and as you move through the company, who are some of the people that were most influential on your career? Number one is my family, having a dad that's been in the business for as long as he was, having a brother that's in the business and still in the business, is a tremendous sounding board. The past president of Pomarco, Morris Butley, was a tremendous mentor during my formative years. And then the leaders that I've had, Terry Ford, everybody's got different styles. What I hope I've done is pick something from everybody's that I've liked that I could use. I'm not going to develop a style just like XYZ just because that worked. That's not me. I couldn't carry that off but I like to chip away and grab pieces of what I see from everybody. And I've had some incredible help. I knew nothing about a P&L when I came to Pomarco in general management. And we had tremendous accounting staff that would spend hours and hours walking me through every line item, the cause and effect from one to the other. I've drawn on as many people as I possibly can. And I think with associations like AICC, the ability to draw on a whole other level of professionalism is, that's one of the things that I really enjoy being as part of this group. It's not just to see customers and wine and dine and play golf. I think there's an awful lot of back and forth that goes on and there's a great network that you can draw on. And to me, that's very important. Pomarco is an AICC education investor I, I believe you guys worked with Printron, Absolute, and JB Machinery, and you created a free online course. What drove you to do that and get involved at that level? I think knowledge is power. The industry needs as much education as it can get. Obviously, it's a great piece of marketing through AICC to be a piece of that. And there's a lot of other great companies, Sun Automation, ECM Inc., that are part of that, Bob's, I believe, as well, are part of that. So I think it was, there was a lot of strategy in making that decision. We were quite unusual doing it as a four-company group rather than just a single company. 
it was Jack at the time at Printo, and obviously JB and Absolute are part of the Pomarco group of companies. Sometimes you have to give back, you have to be giving to the industry, and we believe it was absolutely the right thing to do, and only hope that people take a lot from these educational courses that we put together. Is there any part of you ever wish you were still on the oil field? Every once in a while. It was a great life. I don't think it's a life you could carry on for the rest of your life. You, at some stage, you have to do the traditional settle down, marry, have kids. Very difficult life. 50% of our guys were divorcees mm. because you can only imagine the being away for eight weeks, coming home, thinking you rule the roost at home when you really don't. And that generally didn't work very well. So it, it's not a life for a married guy. But I still have friends in the business who are doing it. They're, they're probably two or three divorces each and just traveling the world with a backpack, basically. <laughs> and love it. You have to be a particular type to do it. But it was an incredible part of my life and one that I'll always look back on very fondly. And it was a great way to sow my wild seeds for a while. If we had some of your team here, what would they say about your leadership style? So what I would hope they would say or what they would say. (laughs) My number one is fairness in my management style. I want to be as fair as I possibly can. I don't like favoritism. If I'm going to do it with this person, I'm going to do it with that person as well. So the fairness doctrine is very high on my list. As I said earlier, I don't want to be a micromanager. If I have to manage people that tightly and closely, then there's a sense of thought of why do I need them as a manager? So I like to give my guys a lot of room to develop their own skills. Uh, We obviously talk and they use me as a consult a lot of times, but I want to give them the opportunity to develop themselves and the opportunity to run their part of the business that they need to run. So I do get involved in a lot of what I would consider to be major decisions, but mainly if they ask me to be involved in it, not because they've been told anything above X, you have to get my sign off. I want these guys to make their own minds up as I had to do. And that was part of my development as a manager. I like to think that any manager I have that works for me could ultimately take my job. And I think they should be in the same mindset. I've hired some very bright people. And part of that would scare a lot of managers. I was always told by my father, hire somebody far brighter than yourself to make you look good. And I've done that where I've been able to bring people in. And it's worked out really well. I also want people to challenge me. I don't want a yes man. I want somebody to say, I don't agree with that. And let's talk it through. And With the group I have, we have a lot of that conversation, which I think is very stimulating. What sort of advice would you give younger professionals in our industry that's heavily privately held, heavily family owned, that aren't owners, that aspire to to do some of the things you've done in your career? Work hard is number one. Nobody deserves a living. Everybody has to earn a living. And that's the way I've always felt. And I think do as many things as you can within an industry. I think having some kind of working knowledge of many pieces of a business is the ideal way to then aspire to grow within the business, reach to the top. I had my hand in sales. I had my hand in manufacturing. Running that small plant in Dallas was the greatest training ground in the world. Doing the P&L, doing the budgets, doing 
environmental compliance, OSHA compliance, everything that there was to be involved with the business. They're all building blocks for the future, and that's the way I look on all of those things. That definitely forged my path very strongly. Look back 20 years, 30 years, what, anything you would change? Anything you would do differently? That's a very tough question to answer. I'm sure th there's got to be, is the answer. Whether it's the path the company took in some respects or the path I took. Obviously, leaving Pomarco when I did in 92 was kind of a big challenge. Having the guts to say, perhaps it wasn't right and come back in 97 was also, I think, a very good and smart decision. So I wouldn't change anything. I don't think you can change the past. I'm a great believer in that. I want to always look forward. But I'm sure there's several things that, that I've done and decisions I've made that I would regret at this point if somebody pointed them out to me. We certainly, none of us are indestructible. But I think generally the path I've taken has been a path I've wanted to take. And I think I can say we're leading Pomarco down the right path as well. We've certainly grown. We've grown in stature in the industry. I think we've grown in stature in these organizations as a result of having people like myself involved in them. And we see these as, again, very important building blocks to secure the future of the company. What's your future look like? Pomarco's future, obviously, it's very bright. The future is bright. One of the questions that we always get asked if we're talking to investors and equity groups is, what about digital? It's going to kill the analogs business. My response there is it's a complementary technology that will only make Flexo better because if we all have to print like a digital printer, we're all going to have to print Flexo much better. So it's only going to lead us to do more and better things. The business is going to continue for a long time to come. There may be more consolidation happens in our analogs business in the United States. It's natural. We as a company do want to acquire. We're actively looking at acquisitions now, but not generally analogs, but just industry related. One of our biggest challenges currently is manufacturing in the UK is very difficult to attract business from Europe because of Brexit. So we're actively looking for a platform in mainland Europe. So that we hope can happen over the next 12 months to establish that. And then just take the company onwards and upwards. And that's what we're all in this to do. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.